If you're brand new to our show or you haven't joined us on Patreon yet, I wanted to let you know that this is a listener-supported show, which means we do not take any advertisements. Instead, we rely on the support of our listeners, like you, to keep us going. The way you can support us is by joining our Patreon, which is where you can support your favorite creators directly. For a small monthly fee, you get access to the show notes, as well as an audio file of every episode we have done. If you want to join up and get all those benefits, you can go to the Growing Band Director website, click on one of the Patreon banners, and get signed up today. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the Growing Band Director podcast. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Our mission is to share practical advice and explore topics that will help every band director, no matter your experience level, as well as music education students who are working to join us in the coming years. Together, we will discuss many aspects of a well-rounded band program, but most importantly, we will discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs each and every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, you rot. Let's get started. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. Welcome back to the Growing Band Director podcast. This is also a joint podcast with Flutes 360. And we have our guest on here today is Dr. Heidi K. Begay. And we have Jeff Smith on here. Jeff, how's the thunderstorm treating you? Well, it's starting to calm down a little bit. And uh, my dog's calming down a little bit. So things are going better. Is that storm coming our way? Uh, no, you're going to miss it. It's it, You'll get a little rain, but you're not going to get the thunderstorms and the lightning and the uh, possible tornadoes. All right. Well, thank goodness for that. Heidi, how are you? Oh, good. Good. And we are actually in Texas getting some storms today as well. So maybe it's a little bit from your neck of the woods. Who knows? Could be. Yeah. All right, Heidi, for our listeners, would you give us a background on sort of how you got started and what you do and, and all that? Sure. Love to. So my name is Heidi and I'm originally from Chicago. I'm the eldest of three. So it goes myself, my brother and my sister. And the reason why I bring that up is because we were all encouraged growing up to participate in the arts in some form or fashion. So I'm a flutist. My brother was a saxophonist. My sister was in choir. And it was really important to my parents that we participate in music in some regard, because my mom was an organist and a pianist. My dad was a percussionist. And so all of that is to say, we grew up with it. We grew up with learning instruments and being a part of it. And I'm so thankful for that introduction. And since then, I loved it so much, even at a young age, that I knew that I wanted to be a part of the music community for my career. I had extremely influential teachers growing up, Dr. Diane Boyd Schultz, some pianists from the church in which I grew up in. And I looked at these women at a very young age and I looked at them and I said, I want to be that. I want to hold that poise, that knowledge, the love for education. I want to be that for somebody someday. And so the rest is history. Got my three degrees and here I am teaching professionally since 2009 up until now. And I love it. And you live in the Dallas area, right? Yes. So, and you work at a flute shop. Tell us about that flute shop because we don't have flute shops here in Maine. 
Yeah. Everybody wants to know about the flute shops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. So part of, so I'm going to take a step back. My career is very portfolio-esque. I was striving for that one academic job teaching flute at the collegiate level. Things unfolded in a different way for me. <laughs> and I decided I'm going to have to let my stubbornness, you know, go to the wayside and drop that to start noticing the opportunities that really were around me. So all of that is to say is in my career, I try to have this nice portfolio and have different streams of income coming in and out of the business. So I'm a digital course creator. I teach in my flute studio. I help my husband with his audio and video production company. Corporate sponsorships is another stream of income through my business. And then lastly, I work with the incredible, phenomenal Carolyn Nesbaum. She is a treat, a friend, a mentor, my boss. And I just started working there four months ago. Great. Well, thank you. You know, I actually have my, so you mentioned st stubborn and flute players. I live with two humans who fit both of those bills, my, yes. my wife and my daughter. And so my, I was talking to my daughter today about how I was having a professional flute player on the podcast. And she's like, and she would, she started flute a year ago. So I still consider her a beginner and she has a couple questions to ask you. Are you, oh, are you open for answering her questions? I would love that. All right, Addie, come on over. Hi. Hi, Addie. Um, how did you get so professional? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. Thank you for asking Addie. Yes. So it was kind of like what I told your dad. When I was your age, well, let me ask you a question. How old are you? 11. 11, yes. So exactly at the same age that you are at now, many moons ago, I was 11 years old and women in my life really inspired me within the music world. And so have you taken any like flute camps or band camps or participated in festivals in that way or not yet? Not yet, but I'm going to next year. That's awesome. So I highly encourage you to participate as much as you'd like to, or as much as you can, because when you surround yourself with people who are in the niche and within the community that you desire to be in, then they start influencing you in beautiful ways. And so for me, the reason why I am a professional is because of these mentors, because I surrounded myself with people who knew the profession so well, I wanted to start emulating them. So if you can do the same for you, then at some point, no matter what career path you decide to take, whether it's sciences or math or education, music, it doesn't matter. You too will become a professional within your respected career because of these important years, you know, that you're in right now. Okay, she's got two questions left for you. What is your favorite song to play? Oh my goodness, that's a hard one, <laughs> but I love it. So there's a French piece. It's a small little flute piece, but it holds a tremendous impact on me. It is by Caplay. And it's titled Preverie, which means uh, dream. And there's another movement. It's two movements. And 
I absolutely adore it. There's some really beautiful melodious moments and there are, are also some really fun, catchy moments that make it really fun to play. Yeah, I like that about songs too. Yeah? When you were learning as a kid, did you ever think it was too hard and that you would consider quitting? Ooh, these questions keep getting better and better. I love it. Yes, actually, to answer your question, not just when I was a kid, but when I was a teenager or in my 20s or in my 30s, I don't think we're ever done learning, right? And so when you put challenges in front of yourself, it feels like, oh, this is too hard. I want to give up. I want to quit, right? Do you resonate with that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's normal. I think that's completely common, whether you are 11 or 31 or 71, when you ask yourself to step outside of your comfort zone, it's only natural to be fearful and it's only natural to want to run away. But we actually, I love to tell all my students to kind of have this warrior pose and decide, okay, well, what can I achieve today towards that goal? Even if it's one baby step. And then you start moving, baby step number two, number three, and the next thing you know, you've reached your goal, whatever it is. So if you ever feel like giving up, there's a couple of things I would recommend. One, you might need to take a break, you know, break away from the project. And two, ask questions. Like I might, you know, I'm starting to build a friendship now with your dad and Jeff here, you know, and hopefully we can be in each other's lives moving forward. Someday, if I come across something in in the band world and I don't know a band book or something and I'm stumped, then maybe I could ask Kyle and Jeff and say, hey, (laughs) can you help me? So the point is you can ask questions, you know, to, to hopefully get over those fears. Yeah. How do you overcome those fears within your world? Um, Well, since my mom's the band teacher, I usually just ask her and she helps me. Yeah. See, asking questions. (laughs) That is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Addie. It was so nice to meet you. You too. Jeff, how's your dog doing? My dog's doing okay now. It looks like the sun's coming out. So he's on his own now. <laughs> I will say, Kyle, that was probably the most fun I've ever had through a podcast episode. <laughs> Addie really raised the bar. Now any podcast episodes after this moment, it's going to be a tough one to beat. <laughs> well, I do have two things to say. One is I, I, I'm sorry I didn't prep you for that. Um, That's okay. But, but two... We were planning on, I was going to try to get it on at the end, but she was like standing here staring at me and it's like, okay. And she had this list of like 15 questions and I'm like, okay, we don't want to ask 15 questions. So thank you. Thank you for helping. You're welcome. She's a future podcast host. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So, and I know I had sent a number of things that I would like to talk about, you know, us band directors, we, uh, I don't know if we have short attention spans or what, but we're just used to dealing with 10,000 things all at once. And I know each one of these, you're probably going to feel like we boil down to a very small amount of time, mm. but I hope it's okay that we try to hit a lot of these. Sure. And um, so let's start in a, a place that, I mean, I am a trumpet player, married to a flute player. So very classic. Jeff mm. is a clarinet player. So Jeff is more of a flute player than I am, but I think there's a lot of teachers who ignore the head joint. 
Like mm. they don't do the whole like, how do you start on the head joint and how do you fix problems by taking the flute apart and using the head joint and all that. So could you speak a little bit about maybe when you're starting kids from, from scratch and then also how you would fix some tone problems by using the head joint? Okay. Yes. I think this is an excellent question. So as a follow-up question on my end, do you feel like colleagues just go straight into the entire flute? Yep. Too soon? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I think there's people listening who don't know anything about just using the head joint. Okay. So I will say before I get down 10 different rabbit holes, (laughs) I will try to highlight one big thing right up front. So that way I don't get lost in this crazy mess. So an amazing resource that anyone can use, band directors, trumpeters, clarinetists, doesn't matter, is the Kathy Blocky Method books. If you have not discovered her line of books, I would buy everything under the sun that she has done in the past. She is a true educator through and through, an amazing professional flutist, a dear friend of mine, and her books are really a staple within our library as flutists. And I don't know, you guys are probably very familiar with the Rubank method books, Mm -hmm. which is great. Phenomenal. I was raised on them. I started teaching my own kiddos on the Rubank method books eons ago, but they're outdated. They're like over a hundred years old. So Kathy Blocky, I think is doing some amazing stuff where she is basing her uh, pedagogy, methodology, everything from research, how kids' minds grow, how they learn. And there's amazing, like beautiful, colorful illustrations. And all of that's to say, uh, to answer your question, there are extremely fun, profound head joint exercises in these books. And these are meant to be used with flute class, right? You can't do flute and clarinet and all these other things. It's like just with flutes. Flute. So this would be amazing for flute sectionals. Or yep. a flute masterclass. Yes. Um, I'm sure there could be some things that could, you know, go over into clarinet or the woodwind section um, if you transposed some things, but it is specifically flute. And how do we spell her last name? Good question. Blocky, B-L-O-C-K-I. Okay. And the reason why I just wanted to throw that gem out there right on top is because if you're lost and you're like, I've never taught a beginner flutist. I think that's the first resource to go to, you know, hands down. And her blocky flute method books, there's like, I believe books one, two, and three, and each blocky flute method book each has corresponding teacher's manual, which makes it really nice for the band room and the flute studio room. In addition to that, this past year, she just put out a new line of books called Flute Zoo. Those are even nicer in the sense of they're a little smaller than the blocky method books. So it gets the kids through the material much quicker. And her and Molly Shortridge did a phenomenal job. So circling back to head joints, (laughs) the flute zoo book has a ton of head joint exercises. And she even has like a, I'm going to mess this up. So excuse me, there's like a birdie exercise where you can just have just the head joint and you hold it near the lip plate and the right hand can go like um, in and out really quick, like bird Mm -hmm. chirps. And then there's like 
finger slides. So like as a trombonist, if there's a trombone-based band director out there, um, open first knuckle, second knuckle, you can do little melodies off of that. So you can make it fun for your students. It doesn't have to be a bore or, oh, I'm just on the head joint. I've been playing flute for 20 plus years. And there are some days where my tone is just garbage, just for whatever reason, right? And I will put the whole flute away, just take out the head joint, feel like a sixth grader all over again, get my mirror and just explore, shift things around this way in, that way out, over to the right, to the left, just to explore and be an investigator. So if if you could do in, I don't mean mean to put a a constraint on you, but in 45 seconds or less, could you explain the flute embouchure and aperture and the low sound and the high sound? Woo! (laughs) 45 seconds. I'm ready. I'm in the hot seat. So you can take, actually, not even the head joint. You can take your finger. So you would take your right index finger, place it onto the chin, and you want to think of this bottom lip as being this pillow. Okay, very pouty, very flush, malleable, right? And the corners are going down like you're sad. You're almost like frowning, right? And then you're going to say poo, poo, poo. So by saying poo in that syllable, when we say poo, our lips are coming off of our teeth, right? It's not peh, <laughs> where the, the top lip is, you know, being pressed up against the teeth, but we want that flexibility. So by, you know, frowning and then saying poo, poo, we are getting this bottom lip to be flat against the index finger. And that's why I say index finger, because then you can feel right? Because the head joint, you're not going to have that sensation. You can take your finger and feel that your bottom lip is down, that the corners are down, that they're pressing up against the index finger. And when you say poo, and you can do this in front of a mirror, then you can see the lips coming forward. And that's really good for projection, tone, resonance. And then like, you know, when you want to change the sound dynamics, you know, things like that. Um, I hope that helps. I think. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So can I, can I interrupt and just ask your question? So here's something I run into. I, I taught public school for 40 years. So teardrops, kids with teardrops. How do you get around kids with teardrops? What's a teardrop? Teardrop, it's a fleshy portion in the middle of the lip that it, it interferes with the airstream coming out using the right. blue system because that's the same system Kincaid uses, used back in the 60s when he was teaching people to play flute. So what, what do you what do you use to get around teardrops? Or I know what some other people use for the method. They just say don't play flute. But <laughs> would you have a system or a method of getting around teardrop? Yeah. So first and foremost, I play off to the side. My I don't necessarily have a teardrop, but I definitely play off center. Now the thing that I just want to throw out there as a generalization is most flutists don't play dead in the middle. Most flutists play off to the side. And so whether it's because of the teardrop or for whatever reason, just an observation or just as a kindly reminder to everybody, no two flutists are going to have the same position of the head joint on their face. So that's just there. Second is, you know, specifically with the teardrop, um, again, remind your students to be patient with the process. 
you know, things shift. Our bodies are different today than they were yesterday. So again, being adaptable and teaching them to be adaptable, I think is key. And then specifically with children who are dealing with that extra flesh in their Mm -hmm. top lip, ask them to say poo and, you know, notice like, you know, maybe have them tilt their head up and have them say poo and then notice like, okay, where is the aperture opening? Where is that aperture? Is it more, are they saying poo and the lip is opening more to the right or more to the left? Based on that knowledge, then that's where you scoot the head joint because you want to find their center. Even if it's not technically the center, you need to find their center. The other other thing that you mentioned that I think is relevant to all woodwind players is the fact that you said frown. How often have we seen any woodwind player and you see them with this big smile, trying to get the skin all tight on their chin and everything. And then the kids can't progress because the tightness has created a, a constraint moving forward. And I think that all our woodwind friends should understand that the frown is the better utilization of the upper lip and corner muscles than the smile or the horizontal. Ooh. Clarinet, you frown. Saxophone, you frown. Flute, you frown. Oboe, you frown. And bassoon, you frown. Because you want the muscles to go in this direction. You don't want them to go out, nor do you want them to go up. Ooh. That's a very that's a very crucial point on all wooden playing. And uh, I think many method teachers who teach in the collegiate level when they're teaching non-woodwind majors neglect to discuss that issue. Thank you for sharing that. I did not know that about all the woodwind players. That's fascinating. Beautiful. Heidi, a, a couple of minutes ago, you were talking about aperture, right? Which is the space between our lips, the hole where the air comes out. I think most flute player, well, this is my biggest issue when I see flute players. A lot of flute players are like me on flute. I'm awful on flute. I have a killer low C and I can't play outside of the staff because <laughs> my okay. aperture is just too big, right? And okay. I think a lot of a lot of band directors who, ha- who are not flute players, they have these flute players who can't, you know, who don't sound very good up high and they have a problem getting up higher. And their answer is always blow harder. Mm. Use faster air, blow harder, which makes you go super out of tune and super bright, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, my wife explains it to me. It's almost like if you're looking out in the horizon at a road and how it, it gets closer as you, as it goes out in the distance, how you need to focus your air and make your aperture smaller. Is that how you would describe that for band directors to describe who are not flute players? She says it's more about placement of the air where it's placed rather. Oh, you like that one. (laughs) I do like that one. (laughs) And I'm going to steal your wife's horizon road example. That is genius. I love it. Yes, it is. Before I heard the road analogy and the horizon analogy, mm-hmm. I was I was getting ready for my answer inside of my noggin. And it was the placement where you're placing the air, because when you play lower, this is, again, a generalization. It depends on what you want to get out, you know, and, and the sound that you're after. But like lower, the aperture is going to be flatter like a pancake. It's going to be a little bit wider. Right. And as you go higher the aperture is going to get more round and as small as like a pinprick, right? And so that happens when I'm thinking like, ew, ew, ew. So the listeners can't see this right now, but I'm thinking inside of like bowel inside of my mouth and thinking of, you know, the size of my aperture, e. And then as I go higher, and so it's bringing my lips closer together, which is going to create that smaller space. 
and it, it's it, yeah so it's that and then you know as you it's then the placement like you need to know where you're placing your air and doesn't that also directly relate to the fact of what you said initially making the lower lip a cushion mm-hmm. whereas we take some of our other woodwind players and you roll your lip over your teeth and you try to keep it firm against here it's counterintuitive to what you do on a clarinet on a saxophone so you've got to get that cushion like you said to make it so the air is directed yes exactly so if we have students who are having tone issues it's like where is the break on flute where is it where they start sort of getting into the not not the upper register but where you start hearing i don't know if crack notes is the the right term i'm a trumpet player right to me yeah. it's sort of in that like ga b flat above the staff range am i am i close yes our break or our cracked area is e in the staff so okay. middle e um, not first line but fourth space e and that's because we are now transitioning into the middle register mm-hmm. so the lower register is going to be about 16 or 17 notes depending on whether the flutist has a b foot or a c foot uh foot joint um and then that low register goes from that low b or low c to middle register E flat. Middle register goes then from that middle E, that's where that breaking point is, to C sharp above the staff. And then the high register, the third octave is that D above the staff all the way up to D7. So let's just talk the F on top of the staff up to the upper D. What is our embouchure doing there? And how do you practice that without the flute put together to improve the tone on that? Ooh. So no matter what, specifically you're talking within that third octave range, but tone in general, you can use, I'm going to sound like I'm fangirling Kathy Blocky all day long, but you can use Kathy Blocky's Numo Pro. It's a yellow plastic head joint and it has like a curved black plastic band that's curved. And throughout this black plastic band, that's really hard to say. There are four different fans. And so you can see, because one of, I don't know, and I don't want to speak on your behalf, but a lot of my issues teaching my flutists is we are wind instruments. We're woodwind players. We don't see what's going on with the air, kind of like a stringed bowed instrument, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's their air is the bow. We don't see that. But Kathy Blocky's Numo Pro, you can see the placement of the air on the red, yellow, green, or blue fan you can see the speed in which the fan is spinning Interesting, and you know, so much more. So you can use the Numo Pro to help with any tone issues and even articulation. It's really good for that too, because a huge problem, myself included, a huge problem with articulation is there's not enough air behind the tongue to have a really clear, beautiful articulation. And so with the Numo Pro, you can have them. And if you don't see that fan spinning, then you know that there's a lack of air. And so anyway, it's it's a visualization. It's a tool to help visualize what's going on with air for both the student and the teacher. So So I would highly recommend that. So the amount of band directors who are listening and making all these faces, and I, I have to say, you said 17 notes. Have, am I the only one who started on a low C and counted up 17 notes as you were talking to see if you were right or not? <laughs> I mean, the amount of stuff the band directors that we do is just, um, where can where can you buy that device and about how much is it? Oh, good question. So you can buy it 
pretty much anywhere. So you can go to blockyflute.com and that's her actual website, but you can go to flute shops, (laughs) circling back to one of my jobs. You can go to any flute shop and buy it there as well. Just the Numo Pro by itself is $30. When you pair it with a complimentary instructional DVD and or some of her books, then she gives you a discount for the bundle. But I would highly recommend that you buy the Numo Pro plus her instructional DVD. I don't know the price of that right off the top of my head, but she does a fantastic job of showing you head joint exercises and the Mm. things you can do with the Numo Pro. It is so worth the investment. Awesome. So say we, we, so we get past that and we put the flute together and we always remember that we can always take it back apart and, and do it. And we should do that just like on, on brass mouth, brass mouth pieces. We do that all the time. So once we're putting the flute together, what are some of your top habits that you insist on? Like, you know, every kid is different, but there are certain sort of unalienable things that have to happen, right? Mm. Either regarding posture or hand placement or whatever. So can you give us mm. maybe just two or three sure. that are really important to you? Sure. So this sounds like I'm not answering your question, but I swear I am answering your question. And that is, I want my students to know that I'm not always going to be around and I'm training them to be their best teacher. That's something I insist on. I insist on them truly listening. Mm -hmm. I insist that they are present in their practice sessions because you guys know, you know this way better than I do. Our 30 minutes or our 50 minutes in the room with them is so short. It's so brief, right? Mm -hmm. So I want them to be intentional with their practice sessions. If they're going to designate 20, 30 minutes to practicing, I want them to know that you can get a lot of bang out of your buck. If you have a focused practice schedule in front of yourself saying, My intention for these 30 minutes is to do 10 minutes of tone, 10 minutes of articulation, and 10 minutes of repertoire. That's important to me as a teacher that they are organized, that they are intentional, and that they have fun learning. You know, if, again, circling back to Miss Addie and her question, we're always learning, right? And I think you guys have said that multiple times Mm -hmm. through your podcast. And I want them to know that we're never done learning. Right. And so, and I think that's important because I insist on that because if they get frustrated in the process, right. I want them to know that they can take a break. They can be an investigator. They can explore. So anyways, I'm rambling, but I really want them to be their best teacher. And so if they are organized, if they're intentional, if they are present in the moment, really listening, really keying into, you know, what's going on with my tone and ask questions out of curiosity instead of judgment. So many times my kiddos come into lessons and they're like, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. And they're always apologizing or they're shaming themselves. I'm like, it's just a wrong note. (laughs) So self-talk is huge. That that's really important to me too, is that you say, oh, that's interesting. And I'm using air quotes right now. Look at that mistake. I think it's just a recalibration, you know? Oh, that's interesting. It has no bearing on who you are as a player. (laughs) And we know this, but we get so caught up in doing things, you know, really well, which is commendable, but it could backfire. 
So hopefully I'm answering your question. I know you're probably looking for something else, but those are some general nuggets that I would like to share. What about the right hand? Is there something about flute players that says the right hand always has to like, isn't that the key to getting the, the best posture? Is, isn't that right hand really important? Because if that slouches down, then all of your posture comes down? Yeah, that's a really good point that you're bringing up. In general, just to take a step back for posture, again, you know, in the world that we live in, right? Phones, tablets, we do this. We're very hunched over, right? So really bringing their attention to body awareness and bringing the flute to them. That's like one of the big things with posture. I think a lot of flutists like go into the head joint or go into the music mm -hmm. stand, but we want them to feel tall and strong and really open and wide and imagine the space around them. So when they bring the instrument to their face, they're more in control rather than them coming to mm -hmm. the instrument. So when the flute comes to the face, we have three balancing points, three and a half. So we have the left index finger right here, the base of the left index finger. We have the right thumb and we have the chin. So if you're holding the flute properly, you, I don't like to use the word should, but this is a good should. You should be able to hold the flute with those three points without the flute teeter tottering, you know, rocking back and forth where the mm -hmm. keys are like forward and back and going all wonky. So that right hand, the thumb actually without anyone taking this out of context, I don't want you to hear the word push and think, oh, push, but the right thumb is pushing very gently the lip plate into the chin. So you have that. And this left index is kind of that balance point of that motion. Hmm. So the right hand, if you, if you do that, the way that the right hand now is positioned is we want the right hand to rotate clockwise towards the pinky. So a lot of times what happens is, and I'm trying to find a pencil because my flute is not anywhere in sight. What happens is with the flute and the right hand, a lot of times their hands, their index finger is resting on the rods. We want to encourage them to go clockwise and to let it to look more like this. And again, I'm trying to be as descriptive through uh, the sound waves here, but we want the, um, the right hand rotating towards the pinky so that way the fingers are off the rods. This mm -hmm. is gonna help with technique and it's also gonna help with that balance. It's, it's just like right hand on the trumpet. You know, you, okay. you, you just have the hand, you know, how you, you hang your arm down and you pull it up and it should look like that. Right. And it's not yeah. anytime you collapse more, you're not going to be able to move as fast. That's a natural ergonomic setup of your hand. Also, I Am I? yeah, you find a lot of people having their kids do the horizontal finger thumb here instead of, like you said, keeping it straight. That's become a very common thing that I've found among the players where you're having to correct it to get the hand. So it's the way you just talked about. Mm. And, and that, I think, is very much related to also trumpet where you have the lead pipe and you have the trumpet players just yep. resting your finger instead of between first and second valve. And that hand position creates all sorts of problems, especially in production tone, because the minute you put your thumb like that when you're playing, well, then you're, you're first of all, you're pulling the flute back this way. So you're rotating the head oh, yeah. too close to the aperture. So you're cutting your airstream off totally. 
I, I think we all have flu players in our mind that we've had in the past. You're like, oh gosh, that's the kid. You know, you that that whole like, oh, and it just is a it's a spiral downward. And yeah. I've never have you ever had a great flu player, Jeff, who like just had terrible posture. It just no. doesn't, it just doesn't, I, I don't know. With flutes, almost more than any other instrument, you can see first if they're going to be successful. Then they might not sound good, right? But like if they look like they have the proper posture, um, I think that's a huge deal. Well, I think like what Heidi said is that it, as you get the flute players, the ones who are the malleable ones who are willing to make the adjustments with their hands and with their mouths are the ones who are going to move forward the fastest. And you try to got to try to convince the more reluctant kids to uh, try this, give it a shot. And, and now with the advent, since I'm a little older than both of you, now with the advent of YouTube and things like that, there's good examples where you can quickly say, here, go to this website and look at this. It's like... Um, Vanessa Mauvais, a body mapping program that she has where she's correlated at Longy between body mapping and the playing of flute and using that. We had her come up here and do a clinic in uh, New Hampshire based on that for breathing techniques. And that made a significant difference. Problem was exactly what Heidi said is that then it's up to the student to monitor themselves after that 30 or 40, 50 mm -hmm. minute thing and keep it going. And you saw 10% continue with the process, but the other 90% went back to the old way rather than going forward with what Vanessa had said. All right, let's, let's shift a little bit to tone. I think it's probably accurate that we want to be able to play with every sort of style of tone, right? Or a type of tone. You don't want mm. to just have one sound, mm. but in, in general, am I, we haven't talked, so I might be putting my, uh, going out on a limb here. Are we going for more of a dark tone than a bright tone on flute? Mm. In really general, yeah, it really, again, it really, I know what you mean. It really yeah. depends on the context of the music. It really depends on what you're after as an artist, but yes, maybe the adjectives here and you can play with me a little bit is that fuller resonant sound. And I think mm -hmm. that's what you're referring to as darker versus a fuzzy tone that might sound brighter or unclear, unfocused. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think like the the full resonant sound is something that we want it's a really great foundational tone to have and then from there when the sound is focused right um, and you are utilizing your air in a really great way once that is established and you have a good sound then you can play with colors mm -hmm. and actually i i heard this i forget who the teacher was from he was from chicago and he said that when he had his flute players who if they had a uh, he used the word bright sound when they went up into the upper register in order to fix it, their flute teachers always had them work on their low register. And mm -hmm. that's actually similar to trumpet. How, if you improve your low register and improve your high register, that's the same on flute. And he was talking about the use of harmonics, which sort of like uh, bl blew my mind a little bit. Cause as a trumpet player, we do lip slurs all the time, but then realizing that flute players can do the same thing. Mm. Right. So can you speak to like, say you have a band director who doesn't know anything about the harmonics of the low part of the flute. Right. Okay. And how can you utilize that in like uh, step one, with a class of kids in order to improve their sound? Sure. Yes, there are tons of amazing harmonic exercises out there. I know that, again, Kathy Blocky has a lot. You can see like how impactful she is within our community because I'm mentioning her three times within this conversation. There are amazing harmonic exercises through the Trevor Y books. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Karen Clardy also has some harmonic things in her books as well. So those are three resources you can pull out from the library.
but yes, harmonics, like the benefits of harmonics is adding that residence in, into the tone. Also adding that color to your sound that we were talking about earlier. It can really help also with the flutist's intonation, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that you can do with your flutes is, you know, you're playing the fundamental note, right? And then the octave above that, then the fifth above, then another octave, the third, the fifth, the seventh, and the octave, depending on the fundamental note. That's a sequence for low, middle C. I kind of went between piano world and flute world. The low yeah, C I think we got it. Flute. Low C on the flute, yeah. <laughs> the low C on the flute. So you can start with whatever fundamental it is, right? C all the way up to G sharp, pick a low note, and some generalizations, some tidbits for harmonics in general, encourage your flutists not to play with vibrato when they're doing harmonics. We are after a really pure sound. We want to get rid of the wah-wahs just for now to strive for that purity. So that's tip number one. I would also advise band directors to go about harmonic exercises in the capacity of slurring. Take the tongue out of the equation because the tongue could really be the reason why that partial is coming out. And we are working on the flexibility of the embouchure. So those are my tips about harmonics in general. And you're encouraging your flutists to float between the different partials. They're not pushing, they're not, you know, forcing, they're floating. And anyway, you know, band directors, kudos to you guys for knowing all the instruments and knowing how to approach each section. I couldn't do it. That's mind blowing to me. Your minds are so creative. Find a creative way to get your kiddos thinking about floating, whatever that is, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, picture analogy you could give them. But yeah, slurred, no vibrato, a nice mezzo piano, mezzo forte, nothing crazy. And they're floating to the different partials. And so going back, circling back to that order I gave for the low C sequence, have them go from low C to the octave above, back and forth, low C, middle C, low just C, that middle is, C. Just that is mind blowing. When kids yeah. have never done it before, just doing that is like such Whoa. a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then from then that first partial, middle C, and then just going from that C to the fifth above, G, C, G, C, G, back and forth, getting really comfy. And again, being that investigator, what's happening with my air? What are my lips doing? really listening. And then you just keep going that way. Uh, once they get comfy with that, then you can maybe make little fun melodies out of these harmonic exercises, like a bugle call or a little melody that, uh, you know, Mary had a little lamb, anything, right? Um, you can be super creative. Like brass lip slurs, you can just do two of them. And then you stack a third one to do like a three note lip slur, yeah, right? Or four. So you can still do the same thing on flute. Yes. So yeah. you could even, and I'm glad you brought that up in threes. So when they're comfy going between the two, then just focus on three fundamental octave and the fifth, and then go back down, you know, just add on one partial at a, at a time, you know, bite-sized pieces is, Did they go, you know, they go up and go down Yes. or just going up, up and down is what okay. I would recommend. Um, mm -hmm. cause they need to be able to get used to both directions, you know, and that flexibility and how to, how to achieve those notes. But yeah, and I mentioned earlier, another benefit to 
Harmonics is intonation. You can work on the fundamental overblow to get the octave, right? And then you're on that low C fingering. You're overblowing to get now that middle C, then switch over to the actual fingering of middle C, one and mm -hmm. pinky, and match the pitch. And then do that, then going fundamental to the fifth, the G. Now you're fingering that low C, right? You're overblowing to get the G and then go to the G fingering, match mm. the pitch. That is an excellent harmonic exercise. Amen. Beautiful. And you know, it's interesting that you say that, that that can be done with all the woodwinds except the, the death stick, the clarinet, because the clarinet <laughs> overblows in twelves. The misery uh, stick, Jeff, the misery stick. Well, it depends on who plays it at the time. And uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, quite often band directors neglect that. And there's ways that it doesn't hurt the clarinet players to just do it by mere hands, but everybody else doing it through overtones, it helps everybody get better. And you know what's funny, you know, because there's a lot, I know a lot of band directors have mixed instrument groups, right? So I really want to do this with my flutes, but, you know, I don't. I don't have them alone and, and, and all that. You can always take whatever the flute exercise is and then write out something for the rest of the band that they can play at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. That may not be as good of an exercise for them, but it's something they can play that takes some time and some, some thought ahead of time. I remember doing that with, with a lot of other things, uh, woodwind based and give the brass something else to do. You know, how often did the brass players do lip slurs and the woodwinds have to like just hold long tones behind, or maybe they play the lip slur uh, as well. I used to have the woodwinds just, do except for the clarinets do the lip slurs based on the fundamental and except for the the clarinets who had the finger it but everybody yep. else did it and it helped everybody all around i love something you said kyle you know because time is precious in those band rehearsals right and during a little mini brass sectional when the rest of the kiddos are sitting there, what do you do with them? So that way they can pay attention and not start talking and yep. being little squirrels. When you're working with the brass or any other section, say, hey, flutes, I'm going to work with the brass for two to five minutes. I need you to pull out that Numo Pro, get that locker mirror that's on your metal band stand, and I need you to practice that embouchure and practice blowing and working on the Numo Pro and the fans. It's quiet. It's a great idea. You know, and they're working, but they're being silent as you're getting, you know. It's, it's funny. You said two to five minutes. That's like a high school, high school thing. And that's even pushing it. Uh, my, if my wife was here, she'd be like more like 12 to 15 seconds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing that, that Heidi said, which was very important was the, the locker mirror. If every kid had a mirror on their stand all the time, when they practiced, they could see what the mouth on the outside is doing to correct and help correct the problem by doing so. I think people overlook having that locker mirror as, as you use the term or some kind of thing to look at so they can just take a look at themselves. It, it helps tremendously. All right. I have two topics, uh, big topics. I still like to get to before we sort of wrap up stuff and everything. Jeff talking about vibrato. I know Heidi mentioned vibrato and doing it with a straight tone, but there was, uh, you know, there's times with our bands where the woodwind sections playing something and maybe it's lyrical and you want it to just have a little bit more. Sometimes we forget we can ask them to play with vibrato. Right. And that that sort of helps a lot. Sometimes the music come alive when you're teaching clarinet. How do you teach vibrato? I don't. OK, I'm I'm from the I was I'm from the old school where there's a school of clarinet players who used vibrato and clarinet players who didn't. Un, unfortunately, 
many, most of my private teachers never taught vibrato. I use it now when I play, depending on what I'm playing. So what do you do? But back, I use a lip vibrato with clarinet. Okay. But uh, back then, um, things were different. It was, uh, you were a bad band director who used vibrato back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Even the 80s, you uh, you didn't do that unless you were having your jazz clarinet players play that way. That world has changed dramatically now, but uh, that, that was a, a mindset for quite a long time. Heidi, what about flute? Yeah. So just to clarify, I know what you mean, and we've covered a lot in such a short amount of time. So the no vibrato comment that I made was in regards to specifically harmonics. Sure, sure. But I think flute right? Of all the woodwind instruments, because we don't have a reed in our mouth. We emulate the voice, the singing voice, I think the best, or we can emulate the singing voice the best. That's an example that a lot of flutists, you know, adhere to. So that's to say, like, be expressive. And you're right, Jeff, you know, growing up, my teacher was 15, 20 years older than me. And she goes, now there's different schools of thought when it comes to teaching vibrato. Some say, don't teach it at all. Let it just be. Others say, teach it. And then, you know, those are your two camps. But the more I get into it, if I let my students on their own in this way of saying, oh, let it happen. Because I think flutists in general, Jeff, use more vibrato than clarinets just in general. Because they're more dramatic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As the three-valve person talks. Okay, yes, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> my point is, you know, if, from my perspective, if I were to let my kiddos go off and do vibrato and just hope for the best and let's see what the natural vibrato and how it comes out, that's a little like gambling to me, right? Yeah. So I teach my flutists vibrato exercises, Uh, Now, when it comes to actually implementing vibrato into the context of music and expressivity, I don't want them to sound like a robot. I don't want them to have the same wah-wah speed on every stinking note (laughs) because it would just be like ketchup. Like I just threw a bottle of ketchup all over my fries and you don't see any of the fries. All you're tasting is the ketchup. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be done musically and with wisdom and with intention, not just, you know, squirting out a bunch of ketchup. So do you do it with a lip or jaw or do you do it with air? How, how do you teach it? That's a great question. So it's a little mixture of the throat. And I say that loosely because I don't want people going, ah, and then the ab- abdominal muscles. So a lot of people say, oh, vibrato for the flute comes from the diaphragm. Well, the diaphragm is an involuntary muscle. Correct. You cannot control the diaphragm. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that feels like. So it's like you're coughing. It's like you're saying, ha, 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 ha. And then you can speed it up. Ha, 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 Right? And yep. so, uh, and the air has to be there. It's always air. And that's one thing that I wrote down in preparation for our talk today, whether it's tone, problems, technique problems, tonguing problems, vibrato problems, intonation problems. It doesn't matter. Always ask as the teacher, what's going on with my students air Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, you're going to find the solution there. I heard an air tip from one of the army men. I think it was airmen of note. They were up at, uh, 
uh, in Maine doing something and they were teaching this, this breathing clinic to the kids. And this kid, this, this saxophone player was sitting down and he said, I remember when ever, all of our dads used to keep carry their, their wallets in their back pocket. Right. So then he'd sit down and he said, I want you to breathe through your wallet. Mm. So all the kids would breathe and sort of like push. It's kind of like breathing through your butt, right? And you push down and it talks about the expanding down versus, you know, expanding up. And and mm. and I thought that was a really great, great way to talk about that. Yeah, it's all around us, right? And it's not yep. just the front part of our bodies, but I've had a teacher tell me to breathe into where my kidneys live, mm. right? And yeah, breathing is so important, just inviting that air to come in in a very natural way. But for your listeners, Kyle and Jeff, I would love to offer you a vibrato exercise Great. that I give to my kiddos. And I am so gun ho about this vibrato exercise. I think it's like, mwah. <laughs> I really love it. And it's something that's been passed. I don't think it's published. It's been passed down from teacher uh, to teacher within my lineage of education. And so I would love to provide that to your listeners. Great. Is it going to be written out or are you going to tell it to us? Oh, I can write it out for you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's Haas. We're hawing in triplets and really get And The thing is when you read this, the disclaimer is when you read these printed notes, you're really, and again, I don't want anyone to take this to the extreme. You're hammering out those ha's. Ha, ha, ha. You want it to be a nice deep wave, right? It's not surface level where it's like, ha, 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 like is something happening, right? And so it's basically G above the staff and it's a dotted quarter note. Then you're going to eighth note A, eighth note G sharp, half step below, eighth note A. And the first time you're going to play those four notes, you're going to play it with a nice forte and you're going to do three haws on each eighth note. So you're going to have nine haws on the G dotted quarter note, three on the A, three on the G sharp, three on the A. The second time you go through that same set of notes, now you're going to do it at the piano dynamic level. Hmm. Then the next step, the G and the G sharp stay the same, but then the A goes a half step above. So now you're doing G, A sharp, G sharp, A sharp. Mm -hmm. Repeat. And you keep climbing chromatically up until you get to the very high C. Awesome. And if anybody wants to see that, Heidi will provide that to me and it'll be on the, the materials for this podcast on the Growing Band Director website. All right. So I assume to be a professional flute player, you have to be able to play piccolo as well. I assume that's a... <laughs> a standard thing, right? Um, yeah. in, in most of our band programs, a lot of kids don't end up playing piccolo okay. because, you know, we have maybe one in each ensemble. Maybe it's a couple of kids who rotate between them. But so what are some traits that make a kid more successful on piccolo? So say you're a band director and you play something other than the flute, or maybe you're a flute player and say you have a middle school band and you've got 10 flute players between eighth grade and seventh grade or whatever, hmm. you know, like, how do you know which kids are going to be better on piccolo? Is it confidence? Is it rhythmic ability? Is it tone? Like what, what are the things that are predictable factors for flute players that might make them strong or even stronger on piccolo than they are on flute? Mm. I do find that I'm actually stronger on piccolo than flute. Hmm. That voice really resonates with me. So what does it take? Like, you, you know what it's like, you know, what, mm -hmm. what does it take to be really successful on piccolo in a band setting? 
I think you nailed it right on the head when you said confidence. Huh. I think that player has to be really confident. And I, the other key characteristic as a band director that you should be looking for is having a good ear. Um, Cause the piccolo, as you know, just lays beautifully on top of the entire orchestration. Right. Or that's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> but they have to have a really good ear because the piccolo is like the cherry on top. Right. You're mm-hmm. going to hear that piccolo player. So, yeah. And you can't shy away from the piccolo. Right. Mm-hmm. So confidence is a huge one. I love that answer that you gave. And then having a really good ear because you need to be able to blend pitch all of that jazz. Beautiful. Um, do you have any audition tips? for maybe not just flute players, but for people who are, you know, taking auditions in general? Yeah, I think preparation is key. You know, going back to this confidence nugget, right? When I am prepared, I am more confident. And when I'm more confident going into that audition room, I feel like I can conquer the world, you know? But if I know I really didn't put in the time Mm -hmm. that I could have, then I'm going to show up feeling timid and meek. And that's not going to help my sound. That's, it's just not going to go well. So I highly recommend to be prepared to the best of your ability. I know life happens. We are all juggling all the things all at once. But if you can try to be prepared to the best of your ability, then that's going to boost your confidence and you're just going to rock it. Hmm. You know, I, I have a friend who's a, a judge. He's judged a lot of trumpets over the years. And he says his rule, his name's Alan King. And his, his rule is never tell a judge any excuses or don't tell a judge any more than they want to know because it's only going to hurt you. You know, mm. he said he's had, he's had kids who come in and say, oh, I just got this music yesterday. Or, oh. you know, like, uh, what was another one? You know, this isn't even my mouthpiece. I forgot it at home or it's not even my music. You know what I mean? Like, all these things that you think are going to be, and I know I'm now thinking like a high school kid or a, a middle school kid, right? But yeah. like these things that we think are going to get us off the hook only mm. make you look worse for an auditioner. Oh yeah, <laughs> 100%, I agree. <laughs> awesome. Well, the last question I have is a message you may have to band directors. Um, ooh. Sort of, ooh, I don't know if I prepared you for that one, but basically, you know, you're talking to, you've given us a ton of great stuff today and we appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. What are some, I don't know, something that, that the general band director should know or something you want to tell them? That is a great question. And I know just seeing you, right, and your co-hosts and just seeing the men that you are, I can only imagine that you guys are phenomenal professionals and I can't wait to get to know you better. So by saying that, I'm sure all of, the listeners listening to this and the listeners who tune into your podcast every week, they are professionals in their own right as well. And so I feel like I don't, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess my tidbit would be, you know, just make learning really fun, make it enjoyable because whether that kiddo goes into music or doesn't go into music, I hear all the time, um, at least a couple times a week where, you know, whether it's people coming in and out of the flute shop or festivals that I meet, or I'm at the grocery store. Oh, I used to play the flute at one point, but I gave that up because I didn't really like it. 
And then you discover through that conversation, they didn't like it or they left it behind or they decided to pivot into something else, right? Because maybe they have another interest. But a lot of times in these very candid conversations, it was some educator at some point within their journey that turned them off. They totally were disheartened. Mm -hmm. They felt defeated. They felt like they couldn't achieve their musical goals. And I'm not bashing any educator out there. Things happen, you know, Mm -hmm. and you don't have both sides of the story. But if we as educators can really show the passion and the love and the joy of music to our students at any age, middle school, high school, and beyond, I think, you know, whether they turn out to be a musicpreneur or they decide to be a lawyer or a welder, it doesn't matter. Music can play a part in our lives in some capacity, mm-hmm. you know, and if we don't want to kill that joy for them, we want to plant that seed, get it to grow, start growing. So that way it can continue through their life in, in any way they, they see fit. So I guess I'm rambling, but it basically boils down to show them the love and passion that first brought you to music. Then it's going to make it fun for them, whether it's in the full band rehearsal or sectionals or their practice time. They're just going to light up and gleam and just really enjoy it. And they're going to Mm -hmm. learn a lot. And that would be a little tidbit and a little reminder to all of us. Well, thank you. That reminded me of a story. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Tim Lotzenheiser. Yes. Um, You have. Okay. He's sort of like the guru around the country. And we were at Midwest. It was about a thousand people in a ballroom. And he said, his quote was, kids are not going to remember what you teach them. They're going to remember how you make them feel Mm -hmm. and how that was such a big deal. And he said, and I'll prove it to you. And so he said, everybody stand up. So we had a thousand band directors stand up and we sang Auld Lang Syne. And that was just amazing. And it's one of these huge ballrooms. And then we got to the the, the middle part of the tune and he screamed the word harmony. And all of a sudden there's like 700 parts happening all the time. And you just get these chills, like, holy smokes. And we sat down and he said, you know what? You're not gonna remember a thing I said, but you'll remember that as long mm-hmm. as you're teaching. And he was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Right. So how we, how can we get the kids to feel a certain way as we're teaching them is a really, really big deal, especially when they're being snot nosed brats. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Saying that with that? all the love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, and thank you for sharing that moment. I see how it impacted you because it was written all over your face. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of my teachers. I've had the good, the bad, and everything in between, you know? And when I think of the teachers who really inspired me, and this is a good, you know, full circle moment all the way back to mm-hmm. the top of the hour. But when I think of the teachers who really inspired me and motivated and loved on me, I also see them not only as my mentor and as my educator, but as an adopted parent or as a best friend or an aunt or an uncle and Mm. their voices and their wisdom, they live with me every day. I told my student last night, Maddie, I said, my teacher's voices are within me all the time. You know, I hear their voice. I hear their inflection. I, I hear everything that they've shared with me and it lives with you, you know? And I think us as educators, that is a huge responsibility that we have, you know, where a family and a student entrusts Mm -hmm. you to share that knowledge in a welcoming, warm, loving environment to their son or daughter. 
Mm. That's a huge responsibility. And I think we should take it, you know, very seriously because again, whether or not they, like you said, how are you making them feel? Right. <laughs> you know, if they leave that band room as a senior in high school, they're going to remember like, oh, did Heidi inject me with confidence, you know, or did she diminish me where I felt this small? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, no one's perfect, but I hope that I'm, you know, injecting them with that confidence and that love. But oh, yeah, sure you are. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a huge responsibility. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Heidi K. Begay and uh, the Flute 360 podcast. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much, Kyle. We sincerely appreciate you taking your valuable time and listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. Your students are very lucky to have a band director like you. If you have any suggestions for episode topics or think you have an area of expertise to share on a show with us, please reach out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Growing Band Director. See you next week.